one of the things that I've noticed in the, the years I've been alive is how people often attribute how they view God to their experience with their own father. Thankfully, I, I, I'm very thankful and very blessed to have the dad that I did. Although he was far from perfect, um, he directed me and raised me and, and, and nurtured me in so many different ways that I would consider my dad one of my heroes in, in that aspect. But there are people that didn't have a dad like mine. There are people that had fathers, if they did have them in the picture, fathers that were sort of absent, fathers that may have lost their temper easily, whatever they do, and they, they automatically attribute our heavenly father to the way their earthly father was. That may be the instance with you, I, I don't know. But what I wanted to do this morning is share with you what I call the loving heart of God, taken from Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, please turn there, because the world is a rough place. Society is difficult to navigate. The way males are portrayed in the media is usually like complete idiots or very strict dictators and tyrants. You sort of have the likes of Homer Simpson, and, and, and that's the way a, a male is portrayed. Then you have the negative aspect of what a, a male is like, that whole toxic masculinity um, tag that is going around today. But you have all this going around, and if you remember last week, we looked at the, the formless, empty, dark, tumultuous life that society leads when God is exited from the picture, when God is left out of the picture. So as parents, uh, specifically fathers, whom we celebrate today, as, as adults, man or woman, navigating fatherhood or parenthood, uh, na- navigating manhood or womanhood, whatever hood may be, navigating that in the 21st century is best addressed for us as Christians when God is in the picture. Actually, not only when God is in the picture, when God is the primary factor, the primary focus of that picture. So if you allow me to open on a word of prayer, and I'm not going to read the whole of Luke chapter five, uh, 15, sorry, we are merely going to look at three things that, that reveal the loving heart of God to us as not only as his children, but to all people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for fathers. We thank you for the blessings that they are, for the father figures, for, as Nick said, for the spiritual fathers that have impacted and influenced each of our lives to draw us closer to you, to learn about manhood, to learn about living a life of holiness and of righteousness in accordance with your word. And so as we look at your word this morning, I pray, I pray that you will Meet us where we are at. Um, As Nick shared, we will experience you personally, intimately, that you will reveal yourself to us in such a mighty way that we cannot help but fall in love with you, our Heavenly Father. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles in Luke chapter 15, we start off in verse 1. And you read that there's this gathering of tax collectors and sinners, and they've all gathered around to hear Jesus, to hear what he has to say, to to hear 
the, the realities of what life is and can be. But in verse 2, what you'll find is that there are many people who are opposed to Jesus and what he stands for. And they come along to listen as well. Not so much because they're curious about what he has to share, but because they want to find something to hold against him. In verse 2, we read, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, for those who may not know, tax collectors are classed in a different sort of, I guess you could say, category of depravity as opposed to sinners because tax collectors were considered worse. And so these righteous people, these holy people, the legalistic religious people of the day showed up and they're like, ooh, look at that man. He's talking with sinners and with tax collectors. But instead of snapping back to them, Instead of putting them in their place, instead of calling out their failures, instead of shutting them down, Jesus responds to them and their presence by teaching them. And he uses three parables to teach them. And what he teaches them shows them the very nature of God's mercy, the nature of God's grace, the nature of God's compassion. Essentially, they are several expressions of the loving heart of God that is taught in these parables. In verses 4 to 7, like I said, I'm not going to read this. If you've got the chance to read through it, read through it. I want to sort of just allude to it as we go through and touch on different things. But in verses 4 to 7, Jesus teaches about the shepherd heart of God. The shepherd heart of God. And he tells the parable of when one, you've got a hundred sheep and one sheep goes off on his own. And then Jesus, being the shepherd, or the shepherd leaves the 99 to track down the one. The one that has left the flock. The one that has gone off on his own. The one that is isolated from everybody else. And in that danger of isolation, in that danger of loneliness, the shepherd, the good shepherd, leaves the 99 to find that one. And when he finds that one, what does he do? He doesn't smack it around. He doesn't kick it over a cliff, which apparently somebody at, at, at um, well, it's one, of the, one of these boys' schools, they found a goat caught in a, a fence on a cliff, and they let it go, and it fell off the cliff. That was terrible. That was your school. Was that you? Okay, all right, just thought I'd ask. Okay, but he didn't do that. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd gathers the sheep, who is probably weak and hungry, puts the sheep on his shoulders, and then takes personally, that sheep back to the 99. It's just, it, 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 it's just an amazing picture of that love and that mercy, that compassion, that desire, because when one is missing, it is not whole. It is not complete. Now, you might be feeling like that as a child of God. And talking with some brothers and sisters, you might feel dry, you might feel stressed, you might feel frustrated, you might feel isolated, you might feel indifferent about what's going on in your Christian life right now. But that doesn't change the way the shepherd feels about you. Regardless of how you feel 
or what you think or where you think you'll find your contentment in life, this doesn't change how the shepherd feels about you. If you feel isolated, if you feel disconnected, if you feel alone at those times, it is where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes searching for you. That he'll go to whatever lengths to ensure that that shepherd heart of God demonstrated toward you is experienced personally. I mean, think about it. You know what it's like to be the object of somebody's affection. I love it when my wife, my wife looks at me lovingly and says to me, you're amazing. Now she doesn't say that. <laughs> but she says to me, I love you. And I'm like, well, to know, to know that when I'm, for example, at camp, I had a great time at camp, but I really missed my wife. And my wife, when I, I left, I remember driving off and my wife, I, I hadn't even got to camp and my wife messaged me and said, I don't know why, but I just really miss you. And I pulled over and I said, I really miss you too. And I, was, I actually even said to her, I'll drive home and come back to camp the next day. I was even willing to do that. She says, no, stay there. But you know that feeling. Now, this is how Jesus feels toward you. This is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep in John chapter 10, verse 11. This is the good shepherd that never forsakes his sheep in John chapter 10, verse 12. This is the good shepherd who knows his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and know his voice. That's John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16. This is how much Jesus, or sorry, no, this is how much you mean to Jesus. This is the shepherd heart of God toward you. And I want you to hold on to that. Know that if you are feeling this way in your Christian life, your shepherd is searching for you, to place you on his shoulders and bring you back, not just to the fold, but bring you back to himself. That's a wonderful picture. Then you have in verses 8 to 10, what I call Jesus teaching about the cherishing heart of God. What was the first one? John, what was the first one? Oh, well done. He was really worried. The shepherd heart of God. You just guessed, you just threw that one out, eh, bro? You just threw that one out, and I hope this is right. The shepherd heart of God. This is the cherishing heart of God. In verses 8 to 10, Jesus teaches a parable of the lost coin. And this woman who loses one of her 10 coins, and so what she does is she searches the whole house. She sweeps under everything. She looks under everything. She, she sits there and turns over everything until she finds that one coin. Now, you might sit there and think, what's the big deal about a coin? Okay, because what happens when she finds it? You read about this big celebration. They have a celebration over finding this one coin. Now, the importance of this coin is that it was probably part of the dowry of the 10 coins that is given out for marriage. Okay, it was either worn on a chain or it might have been a headdress. It might have been kept in a purse. But what it meant was, much like a, a wedding ring that we have today, that's what the, the, the 10 coins represented for the woman. 
that she was married, that she was in this relationship. And, and while one coin was worth one day's wage, it probably had a much more sentimental value of what that represented, that my beloved is mine and I am my beloved, essentially, is what you're looking at there. And so you had this one coin that's found. It's like this, see this wing ring? I had, when I got married in 1993, I had a gold band that got too small for my finger. It cost 80 bucks, $80, little gold band. And then that didn't fit anymore, and so I, I keep that away. And now I've got this one, which is stainless steel, and it's a lot bigger, which I'm starting to outgrow. But, um, but anyway, but once again, this, this, this is only $50, and I've had it now for about 20-odd years. But it's not, when I don't have it, I feel naked. When I would play touch footy, and they'd say, you have to take your jewelry off, I didn't like it because it didn't feel right because of what that represented. So this is how this woman felt about her coins, okay? Now, as you read further on, this rejoicing that takes place, when it talks about having such is the, the heavens, that the angels, that all heavens rejoice when one sinner repents. So when it's talking about the lost coin, it's actually making reference to those who don't know Jesus, those who don't know who God is. See, you may not know Jesus, but the picture here is of God the Father who is searching the house, who is sweeping the rooms, who is overturning the furniture carefully to find you. To find you. The greatest of lengths that he goes to so that people could get to know him as Father. Because I know, as I read in the Gospels, I read how God himself moved heaven and earth to create an opportunity for all men to know him as Father. He has moved heaven and earth when God would leave his glory, adorn himself in human flesh, to be born of a virgin, to live this sinless life, to die this brutal death. He moved heaven and earth so that people, all people would know the greatness of God's love, that cherishing heart of God toward all people, whether you know him or not. And he's, he's doing this by the people he puts across your path. He's doing this by a, a thought that comes into your mind that's not usually normal. He's doing this by circumstances that arise within your life that get you to question things. That is God searching for you. That's the cherishing heart of God. So don't ignore the heart that cherishes you and was expressed toward you in Jesus Christ. What does Romans 5.8 say? How God commended his love toward you that while you are yet a sinner, Christ died for you. That's a beautiful picture of the cherishing heart of God, and it is what the gospel is of how God cherishes you. Now, I guess you could say this is the crux of this message in verses 11 to 32, which we won't go through the whole of it, we read of the father heart of God. So we have the shepherd heart of God. Kenny, do you know the second one? What's the second one? 
the cherishing heart of God. And this one I really like, which I think is appropriate for Father's Day, the father heart of God. It's this parable of the lost son. I like the way Timothy Keller puts it. He puts it, the parable of the lost sons. But we'll look at that later on. But we read the journey of a son who wants what he wants. And if you look at verse 12, he goes to his dad and he asks outright. He says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's in verse 12. Now, one commentator on this parable said this. It was highly irregular for a son to claim his inheritance before his father's death. A less loving father could have had his son stoned to death for having asked such a rebel- for having such a rebellious attitude. That's in Deuteronomy 21 verses 18 to 19. But that doesn't stop his son from asking. Now, from what I understand and with what little information we are given in this parable, it looks like it's a good loving home. It looks like he has a good, loving father. It looks like a home that is financially well off. It looks like a secure, comfortable home. The fact that the father gives his son, who's making a pretty big request, the fact that he gives his son what is being asked for shows a heart that cares for his kids, even when his kids make bad choices. Now remember, these are adults. These are adults making big requests and trying to find some things out. But the son's choices remind me a lot of the choices that Adam and Eve made in the garden. How they're made in the image of God. How they lacked nothing. They had fellowship and friendship with their creator. They, they had rule. They didn't lack food. They didn't lack resources. It wasn't an abusive home. It wasn't an abusive atmosphere. Adam and Eve had it good. And yet, what is the heart of man like? When given the choice to eat of something that they're not supposed to, man wants what man wants. And so they turned their back on their God that loved them, ate of the fruit, and had their friendship with God broken. This is what happens here with the son. Because we read in verses 12 to thir- twelve and 13, the son, he gets what he asks for. We read this, how the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, some have asked, If the father loved his son so much, why didn't he chase after him? Why didn't he stop him? Which is a valid question, but you and I both know what it's like when we're defiant against other people, especially those who are close to us. We have this attitude of, you don't tell me what to do. You see, I see this in school all the time. You put down a rule, and what's the attitude of kids? Rules are made to be broken, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Okay, that's ridiculous. Rules are not made to be broken. Rules are there so you can function and live in life well. Not to break them for the sake of breaking them. And so this here, we have this whole situation where he's like, okay, I'm going to go off and do what I do regardless. 
But he doesn't stop him because he's allowing him. He's allowing him that choice to learn. He's allowing him that choice to discover. And, and can I just say, you don't have to walk away from God to know how much God loves you. You don't have to walk away from God to appreciate what you have in Jesus Christ. You don't have to. But I do know this, that when you try to restrict somebody sometimes, they become more defiant. They draw the line in the sand and say, I won't want to do this. I won't want to do that. That's what, that's what the human heart is like. And so, uh, what, what that uh, one person said, it stirs up an anti-authoritarian attitude within us. That's what happens when we get told we can't do something. Determined what, to do what we want to do in the name of our own personal satisfaction or in the name of our own personal identity or in the name of our own personal independence. Much of the world today, they view God as a tyrant. They see him as a dictator that forces people to believe in him, that he rigs the game so that people don't have a choice. And so people can't, can't get to express themselves the way they would like to. Yet, that is the furthest thing from the truth. The father, father heart of God wants you and I to come to this realization that as the giver of life, he knows what's best and what will bring you fulfillment in life. That as the sustainer of life, he knows what will bring you contentment. As the author of life, he knows what will bring you purpose. And he knows that all of this is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. That he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's Psalm 46.1 that he is with us, the God of Jacob, who is our fortress, Psalm 46, 7. For surely, if you read in Hebrews 2, 16, surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, who are us by faith. And so what happens is you read the consequences in Luke 15, verses 14 to 16. You read of what happens and, and the choices, the consequences of his choices come to fruition. He spends everything, a severe famine hits, everyone is in need. So what does he do? He hires himself out to a citizen of that city and he ends up becoming a pig feeder. He ends up just looking after pigs, and he becomes so hungry that he wants to eat the pig food to survive. Now, this may seem extreme, because I've known many people who have walked away from the Lord. And some of them, their lives haven't fallen apart. But what did they lose? Where, where, where do they now lack? They lack friendship and fellowship with God. They lack communion and communication with God. They lack this closeness and intimacy with their heavenly Father. You see, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. But then he says in verse 2, But your sins have separated, have separated you from your God that he will not save, and that he will not hear. 
So there's this break in this friendship now. It's the consequence of what takes place. In, what's it, in Micah 6, verse 16, the second half says, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. There's a, do, do you guys know a guy by the name of Charles Templeton? Charles Templeton, in the 1950s, was one of the big three evangelists. There was a guy named, I believe his name was, yeah, Tory yeah, Johnson, Chuck Templeton, or Charles Templeton, and Billy Graham. Of the three of them, they said that Billy Graham was the least gifted. Uh, these guys would travel all over the U.S. doing evangelical uh, like crusades and, and would share the gospel, and hundreds of people would come to know the Lord. If you read in the book Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar, he makes reference to these three. And of the three, the only one that finished strong was Billy Graham. Uh, Tory Johnson ends up dying alone in an apartment, drunk, turning his back on the faith. He was divorced. His kids never had anything to do with him anymore. In the sort of late 60s, early 70s, Chuck Templeton became an agnostic. And he said there were facts about the gospel that he couldn't believe anymore. Then what had happened is that he ended up going full on atheism. And like, while he still had a good friendship with Graham, um, he died in 2001. I don't, I don't believe he ended up coming back to the faith. But when I talk about what you lose, what you end up lacking, Tory Johnson was interviewed by Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ, which I encourage you to read. And he was asking him about, he goes, how do you assess this Jesus? How do you think about this Jesus, he asks Templeton. And the way Lee Strobel describes it is that he said Templeton's demeanor just softened. He softened, he relaxed, and he ends up saying things along this. He goes, he was, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I have ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? This surprised Strobel. He was like, oh, okay. He wasn't expecting such a response from Templeton. And he, and he, he asks him, he says, you sound like you really care about this, this Jesus. Templeton says this. He goes, I... I, I, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and, and, and he's tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of, every, of, sorry, of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. He said slowly, he's the most, he stopped, he started again, this is what Strobel says, in my view, he is the most important human being that has ever existed. And then Templeton finishes with this, and, 
And if I may put it this way, he said with his voice begin to crack, I miss him. And then he broke down in tears. He broke down in tears and he just wept and sobbed. He says, I miss him. And then quickly he gets himself together again, brushes himself and he goes, okay, that's, that's enough of that. You see, this is what you lose. This is what you lose when you walk away and try to find your contentment, find your purpose, find your direction, find your, your, your whole life's direction in things outside of Jesus. You might try to find it in another person, but people change, people leave, people die. And if your whole world is wrapped up in a person and then that relationship falls, then where are you? It might be in your job and find it in that. And there's nothing wrong with working hard, but with the money that you make, with the possessions that you have, with the cars that you drive, well, that can all be taken away. The, the financial economy of the world is volatile and that can disappear like that. And then with what are you left? It's what makes Jesus so important. And, and yes, you will have consequences, but it is not God throwing down on you if you choose to walk away and experience the hardship of life. That is because God is excluded from your life. And this is what I like. Verses 17 to 19, we read this. When he came to his senses... While he's feeding pigs, while he's challenged with things, he's confronted with this reality. He comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So his mind clears and he goes back to the only place he knows where he can find acceptance, where he can find understanding, where he can find mercy. And that's back at his father's house. And in the father's heart, you read in, in verse 20, he gets up and he, go, he got up and went to his father. And in the father heart of God, we see the expression of the shepherd heart who seeks the lost to bring them back. Um, we read in verse 20 again, that while he was still a long way off, so the father, this is talking about the father, that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. His son who had been lost, his son who had forsaken everything that his father had, including his love, had found acceptance in the love of his father. What an amazing picture of the love of God to us. What an amazing picture of the father heart of God, the shepherd heart of God, the cherishing heart of God for us who would much rather do what we want to do, who would much rather want to live how we want to live. 
And he reaches out that when we, what does Zechariah 1.3, I've told you this, I've told you this, Zechariah 1.3, that when you reach out to him, he reaches out to you. That is the father heart of God for us as his people. And in the father heart of God, we, ex- we see the, exp- the, the expression of his cherishing heart that welcomes back his humbled son. What does it say in verse 21? That he says, I would much rather be a servant in your household. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Then I'll just, I'll be, I'll be happy just to be a servant. And then you read in, in verse 22, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate the father heart of God that rejoices that you are in his presence. The father heart of God that rejoices that you are his child. The father heart of God that even with the mistakes that we make, the failures that we perform, the disappointments that we can be, the father heart of God, the cherishing heart of God, the shepherd heart of God welcomes you, holds you, and celebrates you. That is the beauty of God's heart towards us that reaches out, that accepts, that forgives, that welcomes. Such is the Father heart of God manifest toward you and I from God the Father through God the Son and experienced through God the Spirit. While I know, while I know intellectually about being a father from from. from my own personal experience, and I can look at the example of my heavenly father, the best means by which I can demonstrate this shepherd heart, that I can demonstrate this cherishing heart and, and, and this father heart is to, to, to just dwell in and meditate on and experience that heart that God has for me. As I look at his word, as I spend time in prayer, as I worship him, I realize the greatness of who he is and what he has done for me. Because in the scriptures, I read how all we like sheep have gone astray, that we have all turned to our own way. That's Isaiah 53, 6. And yet I'm invited to seek the Lord while he may be found to call on him while he is near. He says, let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let, the, let, the turn, let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, he will, for he will freely pardon. I read God's own people, how the priests don't ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. That's in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. And yet hope is pronounced when he says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show you great and mighty things that thou knowest not. That's the King James of Jeremiah 33, 3. I read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, contrasted with the beautiful reality, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
see. I see in all these passages of people that like the Son, want what they want, but also see the Father heart of God at work in each of those situations. This reconnection, this reconciliation, this restoration takes place as we look to the God who looks out for us. Uh, Genesis 16.6, you are the God who sees me, who reaches out to his children who reach out to him, Zechariah 1.3, as I shared, and who rejoices over his children with singing, Zephaniah 3.7. See, this isn't a, a message to make you feel better about yourself. There's not a message to make you walk around and say, whoa, I am I'm amazed because I am loved by God. No, this is a message that looks at the greatness of the shepherd toward you, the shepherd that cherishes you, this father that loves you. Because the best way we can learn about love is to experience the love of the one who is love. Then, then, as we experience such love, we are better equipped to express that love to our children, to our spouses, to our friends. This is the loving heart of God toward us, brothers and sisters. And I pray that it's not just head knowledge, but that it will impact your heart and it will move you from here to where God wants you to be. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful picture of your loving heart toward us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that as the good shepherd, you have laid down your life for us as your sheep. That you don't leave us to our own devices, but you would, you would reach out to us. You would chase us down. Father, that as a cherishing heart that you have for us, even for those of us who don't know you, that you have moved heaven and earth so that we can call you Father. And I pray for those who don't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them in such a mighty way the greatness of your love demonstrated to them in Jesus Christ. And Father, as your children, we thank you for that father heart that cherishes, that nurtures, that encourages, that equips, that corrects and chastises. Thank you that we have the blessing of being called your child, the manner of love bestowed upon us that we can be called the sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you so much for your loving heart. And I pray as we leave here today, we would not only receive that love from you, but express that love to each other for your glory and for your glory alone. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.